There will always be a segment of the population that is anti-nuclear power, no matter what you tell them. And that's a healthy skepticism that you want to understand. There's also a segment of the population that's grown up around nuclear power, and that segment of the population believes in nuclear power and wants to see more of it. Then there's this kind of 40% of the population that's on the fence and really doesn't understand both the risk or the benefits. And that's the group we really spend a lot of time talking about and advocating for. There's a generational issue here. The new generation, the younger generation, who truly are concerned about climate change and two degrees Celsius temperature rise, they're also the ones that have understood that without nuclear power, we can't achieve any of the goals that were set in the Paris Climate Accord or in COP26 or COP27. So it's an interesting new generation that's looking at all of the risks and rewards of energy mixes and coming to the conclusion that without nuclear power, we simply can't decarbonize the planet. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where I talk with experts in the experience of being human, athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, those people who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, we have retired Rear Admiral Mike Hewitt of the U.S. Navy. He's a co-founder and CEO of IP3, the corporation, IP3 Corporation, and CEO of Allied Nuclear Partners. We're going to talk about nuclear power. This is something that I haven't considered for a long time, really. So it's kind of interesting. And Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Chris, thanks for having me. And I'm so excited to continue the great conversation you and I had less than a month ago in Colorado. And I think maybe just to point out that international peace, power, and prosperity is IP3. So when we talk about nuclear power, the way we think about it, it is really about peace and power and prosperity for the planet. And so I'm excited to be here and look forward to sharing with you the, the future of, of the planet around energy and clean energy. Yeah, and, and looking at nuclear power and clean energy, because in some ways, I think there are a lot of us who don't necessarily associate nuclear power with clean energy. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. And to me, it seems like there are a bunch of topics, the idea of like branding, disposal, cost, competition, carbon, democracy, energy security, energy poverty. But I have to go back to, I'm a kid of the 70s and 80s. So the kid of the 70s and 80s, it's war games, the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl. Even in 2011, the, the, the Fukushima meltdown in Japan, from Fermi to, to the race for the bomb in World War II, uh, it's one of the most amazing scientific breakthroughs but also one of the most scary, I mean, nuclear leaves such an indelible mark on history. How do we look at the brand part of nuclear power? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting topic and a historical perspective. And you have to almost go back to when we first split the atom. And when we first split the atom, there was an unbelievable thought about what we could do that was peaceful, but unfortunately it also was caught up in what was necessary 
in the 1940s, which was the creation of an atomic bomb in a race with Germany. And so you had this kind of dual issue here of an unbelievable opportunity to electrify the globe. And at the same time, an unbelievable dangerous use of the same exact technology. And so when you follow the history of nuclear power, it started off almost in these two opposing views of the planet. Um, and many will argue for forevermore about the use of the atomic bomb to end World War II. Uh, but more importantly, it was an understanding by people such as Eisenhower who were part of that conversation in the early 50s that he saw this unbelievable peaceful opportunity for nuclear power. And he gave this famous speech in 1953 that was called Atoms for Peace. And he had this view of electrifying the planet with the most dense resource we have, which is uranium. And he saw this opportunity to, to bring clean energy that was baseload to, to an emerging market, to an existing market. But at the same time, they didn't appreciate the potential dangers of a world full of nuclear power. So it is still the conversation that we have today. But despite that, if you pay attention to nuclear power as clean energy, which at the time, the world wasn't focused on decarbonization. What they were focused on was having adequate power to, to power countries that didn't have it. And now what you think about is renewable energy. Everyone associates renewable energy, which is wind and solar, with decarbonizing the planet. But in reality, nuclear power is the most abundant source of completely clean energy. So I think it's important to think about clean energy, not just renewable energy. But your key question and the point that we work very hard on is the branding, is an understanding that everybody has seen the movies, everybody has read about Chernobyl or Fukushima or Three Mile Island. And many of those issues have been addressed through science, through safety issues and others. But the reality is those three events um, did not have the impact that Hollywood wanted you to believe they had. Um, I'll give you a couple quick examples. Fukushima in uh, 2011, it, it absolutely uh, didn't harm anyone with radiation. Everyone was, was killed by the tsunami um, that, that caused the accident and the meltdown of the reactor. Three Mile Island in, in Pennsylvania, it shut itself down as designed. And so while one plant had a serious mechanical catastrophe, there was nothing catastrophic about it. The system just shut itself down. The other reactors that were at the same location in Three Mile Island continued to operate for decades. And then finally, the one that really draws the most attention is Chernobyl in Ukraine in the mid eighties. And that was gross mismanagement by the Soviets in operating that plant. And many of the design features that you see in the fleet of reactors today came from that Chernobyl accident. But even that accident, from most calculations, killed 40 or 50 people. And you compare that to the 8 million people a year that die from pollution today. And so I think there's a more pragmatic conversation happening now about the risk and the benefits of nuclear power. Right. I mean, the hard part is it's just it's the picture that you get right of nuclear power of Chernobyl. I happen to know one of the Paralympic athletes, a woman named, named Oksana Masters, is has birth defects as a result of Chernobyl. 
was adopted from Ukraine. So when it gets personal sometimes, then you go, okay, don't touch that because it gets it, it, it that that stigma persists. And so that that to me is one of the biggest challenges because most of us aren't having this kind of conversation of, okay, pollution is killing 8 million people and that's a few hundred people. Those numbers, obviously there's a huge discrepancy between those numbers. How, how are you guys finding a way to have that conversation? Because that's part of the step, isn't it? To be able to get public buy-in to be able to move forward. There, there will always be a segment of the population that is anti-nuclear power, no matter what you tell them. And that's a healthy skepticism that you want to understand. There's also a segment of the population that's grown up around nuclear power, their families operated nuclear power plants. They've enjoyed the clean power that came from power plants. And that segment of the population believes in nuclear power and wants to see more of it. Then there's this kind of 40% of the population that's on the fence and really doesn't understand both the risk or the benefits. And that's the group we really spend a lot of time talking about and advocating for. And, and what's really interesting, as I mentioned to you before, there's a generational issue here. The new generation, the younger generation, who truly are concerned about climate change and two degrees Celsius temperature rise and the things that they've read about and have studied and truly believe in, they're also the ones that have understood that without nuclear power, we can't achieve any of the goals that were set in the Paris Climate Accord or in COP26 or COP27. So it's an interesting new generation that's looking at all of the risk and rewards of energy mixes and coming to the conclusion that without nuclear power, we simply can't decarbonize the planet. And, what's, and so what's happening now is the advent of what we call small modular nuclear power plants. These new, more innovative, safer, um, less fuel needed. In some cases, they run on spent fuel. In some cases, they run on fuel that's a much higher fuel factor. There are many, many new innovative ideas that have come about since the 1970s when over 400 reactors were built worldwide that have created new, interesting, innovative, safer forms of fission um, power production that are being widely adopted now. Uh, and one of the things that's so interesting, they sit alongside renewable energy and they complement each other. So I think the nuclear power industry has understood that A, it needs to address the concerns, but B, they need to create a new, more innovative form of nuclear power that can fit the emerging market, the, the greenfield market, um, countries in Africa that are pursuing nuclear power, countries in Asia that don't need large nuclear power plants, but would love the benefits of nuclear power. And, and I'm, I'm obviously a huge advocate for it. The one thing that we typically don't think about is the science and the medicine and the STEM and the women in STEM and the second and third order effects of a nuclear power industry in a nation creates unbelievable wealth. It creates unbelievable jobs. And it puts a nation on the front end of new science and new endeavors. Uh, and so there are a host of benefits beyond electricity generation that many nations are now pursuing. And this is this is some of the sovereignty that you're talking about in terms of in terms of fuel. Can we take just a step back though with the small modular reactors? 
what constitutes a small modular reactor? We've seen the gigantic, you know, I mean, the nuclear reactors have a very distinctive look, right? This is different. And what kind of output do you get? Like, so size and output. So what's really interesting, there's lots of neat, neat attributes about small modular reactors. The most important one is the fact that it's modular. In other words, it's built in a factory setting. Think of it like an aircraft, a Boeing aircraft, which comes off an assembly line, which is one a day, let's say. A small modular reactor that's built in a factory setting gives it much more confidence in the cost of building it and the ease by which it can be manufactured and assembled. And so you reduce the cost and the risk inherent with a large construction project. So the most important attribute is the modularity of it. You think about Boeing, they build 777s, they build 737s. So the second attribute that's really interesting is I can tailor the size to the need for the power. So there are small modular reactors that are in the one to two megawatt range that can fit on the back of a truck. There are modular reactors that are 300, 400 megawatts in size, which is about half the size of a, of a large old school nuclear power plant. And, and same as coal, right? So coal is about a 600 megawatt. Exactly. So uh, a coal-fired plant that operates at about 600 megawatts of power output, um, we can build a small modular reactor that almost replicates that. The other part of a small modular reactor is I can put several of them together. So I can put them in series. So let's say I want to replace two gigawatts of coal with two gigawatts of nuclear. I could do that with four smaller modular reactors set side by side, or I can distribute the power where I need it. And so one of the other key attributes of a small modular reactor is that I can put it where I need the power. If you think about traditional energy, what, why, were, why were the coal-fired plants near the coal mine? Because that's where the coal was. So then the grid would be built from where the power was produced and it was just distributed. With SMRs, I can put them precisely where I need them. And so think about the mining industry in Zambia where I'm doing work today. 50% of their electricity is consumed in their mining industry, yet they don't have enough power. So we would actually build modular reactors right next to the mines so that the Zambians can actually have manufacturing with the mining and not have to let the Chinese take all their rare earth minerals back to China. So this is really about matching up the needs of the power for the country with what we call the offtake. What is it I wanna do with that power? And again, a modular reactor gives you the flexibility to do these kinds of things. And then the last thing I would mention, inherent with all the new safety features that were put in the modular reactors, from a financing perspective, these are bankable investments. I can bring private sector money to actually develop, finance and procure a small modular reactor. And so imagine countries that don't have the credit rating or the balance sheet to spend several billion dollars on a nuclear power plant. We can incentivize the private sector to come in and build these reactors for countries that could never afford to do it on their own. So that's why we're so excited about this new form of nuclear power. And maybe the last thing I'll mention is innovation. With the small modular reactor, privatizing the way we're going to do it. It opens up the aperture of innovation into an industry that really hasn't innovated since the 1970s. And so if you think about the space industry, 
and how Elon Musk and Branson and Bezos had this vision of space by which they created these really neat Falcon 9 rockets that can come back to Earth. And everybody thought, how innovative is that? In reality, that wasn't the innovative part. The innovative part were the hundreds of companies that were created that saw an opportunity to be in space, collecting data, providing imagery, Sirius XM radio. So I'm extremely excited about the future of nuclear power because I think innovation is just begun. Well, and some of what you talked about before, I believe I got this correct, was that in a nuclear plant, you actually have to have a plan from beginning to end, which is not necessarily the case with other energy sources. What, what, what exactly does that mean, having a plan from beginning to end? So if you, and that's a great question because when we compare the cost of building energy, wind and solar versus nuclear power versus coal and, and natural gas, the stigma on nuclear power is it always costs so much. The capex is what we call it. So much more expensive to build a gigawatt of, of nuclear versus say a gigawatt of wind and solar. Well, a lot of the wind and solar is subsidized, but the real important point is from beginning to end, the nuclear power industry is the only one that accounts for the decommissioning of the plant 60 years into the future. And it accounts for the cost of storing all of the spent fuel and the waste that's accumulated over that 60 years by the reactor. So it's the only industry that accounts for the entire life cycle of the plant. And, and so the costs are higher because they account for these things up front, which is critically important for any energy solution. And unfortunately with wind and solar, they don't account for their waste. They don't account for the replacing of the turbines and the solar panels. And right now there really is not a solution for how do you safely dispose of and store these toxic components. So I'm not trying to point out that wind and solar don't are not responsible industries, but it's important to think from beginning to end when you build something like this. And I mean, obviously the waste, uh, the nuclear waste as well has always been a topic too, right? Of how do you dispose safely of nuclear waste? Has that continued to progress? It, so nuclear waste is always the sticking point when it comes to discussing whether nuclear power um, is ESG compliant or, and in some cases up until last year, the ESG world, if you're familiar with the environmental sustainable governance structures around investing in clean energy, always precluded nuclear power because of the waste issue. They considered to be um, unfriendly to the environment to have this nuclear waste sitting around. Well, in fact, what we were able to prove and argue is that the, the waste is stored safely and securely. The waste is accounted for for the life of the program. And when you weigh the importance of storing the waste versus needing the power, you come to the conclusion that I do need the power as long as I can store the waste safely. And maybe to put it into perspective, we've had over 100 nuclear power plants in America running for the last 40 years. The entire accumulated spent fuel from those 100 plus reactors over the life of the program would fit inside of one football stadium today. So I, it is critically important that we store the waste safely. And we have since the beginning of nuclear power, we've never had a spent fuel issue ever, whether it be safety or terrorism or anything like that. We've never had spent fuel that's been unaccounted for and it's always been stored safely. I will add to that though, innovation 
is happening all around us on the safe disposal of the fuel. We're watching um, many, many innovative ideas come along about what we call environmental remediation. So imagine eliminating that spent fuel and turning it into something that we can use again. Or in the case of Bill Gates with his nuclear power program, he's actually building a reactor that runs on spent fuel. And, and what's interesting about spent fuel is 90% of it is reusable as, as a source of energy. So I love the innovation that's happening around spent fuel, because I think what we're gonna find is that not only are we going to eliminate it, we're gonna find uses for it that are environmentally friendly. Environmentally friendly, it's interesting because I've read a few of your op-eds and, and talking about carbon as the metric versus autonomy, you know, the sovereignty versus production in a lot of ways. What I mean, it's an interesting argument, right? Because I think that we are caught up in okay, it's getting warmer. I live in a ski town. Like we're we're hoping that there continues to be snow in the future. Snow and water, right? Because that's a fairly integral part of our lives as well. But how is changing that argument from you know from this idea of of the carbon as the metric to our ability to live with the kind of integrity with which we've grown accustomed, to which we've grown accustomed. How, how does that change? How, how does that change? And then how has that been received as, as a counterpoint? So it's an evolving conversation, I would say, that if you back up to the Paris Climate Accords, which was really the first time that the nations got together and established a metric, which was two degrees Celsius temperature rise, was an important metric that the world should attempt to achieve. And then they decided that the way to achieve it was decarbonization. In other words, to reduce the carbon footprint of the planet was the only way to keep us under two degrees Celsius temperature rise. And then further, the conversation became even more narrow, which was wind and solar were the only ways to do it. And so what we did essentially was we made climate policy, which was really decarbonization, drive energy policy, and almost ignored the attributes that I think are important, such as there were over a billion people on this planet with no power. There are places in the world that renewable energy simply won't work. And many of the continents in Africa and the emerging market haven't industrialized yet. And so the point that you're making that's such an important one is decarbonization is an important metric. Climate change is an important metric as well, but it can't be the only metric. And so we have to balance energy poverty, which in many ways we've created by this oversubscription to renewable energy in parts of the world where it simply won't work versus America, where we have all this abundant power. We have the luxury of pursuing renewable energy and decarbonization as a, an important metric. And in many places, what we've created is too much focus on decarbonization and not enough focus on keeping energy um, diverse, abundant, and stable in terms of price. And so the conversation since Paris has gotten much more balanced. And unfortunately, you could say that it was the invasion of Ukraine by Putin that got everybody thinking about energy security or energy sovereignty or, or energy independence. 
Well, I look at all of those things and I say, energy policy should think of both poverty, sovereignty, and decarbonization. And so I, I think that balance is coming back into existence today. And energy security to me means a lot of different things. But ultimately, if you're a family and you have the choice of whether or not your kids have a home to live in and have food to eat and have the ability to get to school and you to get to work at a reasonable price or your family's producing some amount of carbon that needs to be addressed and you had to choose between those two, you're going to choose energy sovereignty over climate. So I think you're watching the world become more objective on this issue. And we're not giving up on climate change. It's just the opposite. What we're trying to do is focus on decarbonization in a smart way. And, and so I think the world is now addressing this issue uh, in a much more balanced fashion. It's interesting that you mention Africa too, because, because that's a place that has had a variety of different issues. When I was there, one of the things that I noticed was that everyone had a cell phone. They did not, there were not a lot of hard lines, right? Because everyone could have a cell phone. You could put up a cell tower and everyone has coverage or, you know, as much as everyone has coverage with a cell tower anyway, right? But but this is a similar analogy too, right? That That with the SMRs that you could conceivably just effectively it's kind of like putting up a cell tower is that am i okay in drawing that analogy it's a great analogy and it's actually one that i use a lot about the continent of africa because they didn't have many of the infrastructure distribution and grid and power that were needed for cell phones but the opportunity to put cell phone towers in that could proliferate the continent in a positive way was exactly what happened I mean, IT, data centers, cell phones, in, in countries that we would consider third world or underpowered, have as much connection to the internet as we do. And so you're exactly right, looking at how best can we industrialize the continent. And so now SMRs become interesting because I can put them, instead of having to move power for hundreds of kilometers, I can now put the power where I need it. So it is very much, analogous to cell phone towers and bringing new innovative communications in. And, and we focus on Africa a lot. Um, there are 17 nations pursuing nuclear power through legitimate means today. Many of them have great ideas, but the challenge is the financing, the security, the regulatory. And in many ways, countries such as the United States have made it so prohibitively difficult for the emerging market to pursue nuclear power. What we're really working on is bringing down those barriers to entry. And one of the things, again, that I find fascinating about nuclear power is the human capital development. So when you start to talk about bringing hundreds of Zambians to America to learn in our universities, to learn to our standard of care, and then returning them home to an industry that now exists in their country, to me, it is one of the best ways we can stabilize a country in Africa. And so the, the opportunity for nuclear power in Africa, and many people say, oh, it, it can't be done. It's the same analogy as cell towers. It sure can be done. And, I, and we are extremely excited about giving those billion people that don't have power something to, to, to grow from and industrialize around. 
and clean. I think we never forget that part. This is the clean energy solution. The clean energy solution. And in a lot of ways, it seems like it's jumping the line. I mean, that's, that's the way I look at the cell phones. Like I don't have, I don't have a hard line in my house anymore. We, we have cell phones and that's, that's what we have. And so it's, it's jumping that line. Historically, one of the issues with developing countries ha has been sort of getting them in over their heads as far as financing is concerned. I mean, you talk about that where they're, they're beholden and they're stuck and then, and then they're not progressing. So you, you're the financing part, how, because, because these developing countries are also, according to, to a lot of what you've written are important to the future of the, of the energy sovereignty, right? How, how does that, how does the financing work and how does that allow them that sort of autonomy to, to live, to live their lives free of the burdens that they've known historically? So let me put on my geopolitical hat for just a second. Um, trying to help countries through free market enterprise and commercial endeavors uh, in countries that really don't have the right financing structure or the credit rating um, to pursue multi-billion dollar uh, infrastructure projects like this um, are, are held back. But the flip side to that is Russia and China who are state-owned enterprises who come in with the money and the people and the motives to be the country that brings this, this infrastructure. And the motives you're talking about. The, the motives, the motives which in some cases are very righteous, which is I want to bring abundant clean energy to Zambia. But the other motives are I want to geopolitically control this country. And particularly with China, we've seen time and time again this kind of predatory mercantilism where they will go in and, and structure a financing deal. And then when the deal falls through, the Chinese come back and restructure by now owning the property or now taking a piece of the sovereignty of that country. And if we don't offer these African nations an alternative to that, that's driven by free market enterprise and the rule of law and the World Bank and all of the things that we desperately want to bring to Africa, then we're kind of failing them and us. And so one of the things we really focus on is how can we structure the financing and the incentives so that US companies can come in and develop nuclear power and develop hydrogen systems and develop solar to produce ammonia systems and all of the, the clean energy solutions that we wanna see in Africa. How do we create the scenario by which these countries can afford to do that? And so that has been a key part of our thinking. And I will tell you again, back to the small modular reactor, it's like buying an airplane. If I can turn it into that kind of commodity. So you, you pick a country like Zimbabwe, now, they don't know how to build an airplane, but they have an airline, Zimbabwe Air. Now, how did we get an airline into Zimbabwe? Because we created the conditions that they could afford to buy the airplanes, train the pilots, and have a functioning airline. This is exactly the scenario we're trying to create for nuclear power. Bring down that barrier to entry. And the way to do it is to have a factory approach that allows me to reduce the risk, have confidence in the supply chain, and attract private capital to come to Africa and invest in these solutions. And we are very optimistic that that is what we're gonna be able to do. To be able to do it as opposed to the sort of untenable situation where 
they get in over their heads and 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 then you know somebody's coming in and taking it over or they're just in debt for forever that's right which is an interest i mean it's just i look at it and think okay that's that's one part of the world but then ukraine put us in a position where i think a lot of us saw the energy crisis in a more personal way too so this is kind of you know looking across the world looking at africa but then looking at home where you know gas prices are are five dollars a gallon and we think okay we need to do something now and a lot of the initiatives have been in terms of in terms of renewables i mean it's what it's a a 370 billion dollar investment in, in renewable renewables in the country but nuclear is is something that hadn't really been considered or hadn't really been part of the conversation as much how much does ukraine become a precipitating event to affect a greater change because we often need to be forced in a direction to have a consensus about a change and certainly about something that a lot of people had had a had a a you know had not such a favorable opinion of for a lot of their lives it's a it's a great way to think about it because first off i will say this that putin and the pandemic did not cause the energy crisis that we're seeing around the world today it started a long time ago with this overabundance and overfocus on renewable energy at the cost of fossil fuel, kind of vilifying fossil fuel, forcing countries in the EU to get out of fossil fuel as a predominant source of electricity before we had a legitimate um, alternative, which really put them uh, in the hands of Russia. Now, what happened with Putin's invasion was this awakening around energy sovereignty that was critically important. Because really what Russia and China have done with energy for the last 40 or 50 years is use it as a, a tool of geopolitics. And so the one benefit, if there is one, of the invasion of Ukraine was an awakening to the fact that a country that is dependent upon another country for its energy is vulnerable to these kinds of things. Ukraine is a fascinating country. It is a country that is powered 40% by nuclear power today. It's a country that has the breadbasket of the planet in it. It's a country that has probably one of the highest um, math competencies in the world. I mean, they are, they rival the Germans in engineering. They rival the Russians in terms of their art and culture. And so it is one of the most sophisticated countries on the planet. They dominate the aerospace industry. They produce most of the fertilizer that helps our agribusiness grow. And so to think about what's occurred in Ukraine is frightening because this is a first world country that we should be very protective of. And what Putin is doing is actually going after those assets that Ukraine has. And, and so here we are thinking about energy poverty and the shortages of food and the prices for electricity Many of those things were happening long before the invasion. And so if anything, we, we're now thinking about this differently. And I think that's a good thing for us to, to be doing. And again, what we realize is that natural gas may not be the cleanest form of energy, but it's cleaner than coal and it's cleaner than oil. So how can we help countries wean themselves off of Russian influence? We're gonna have to give them natural gas. We're gonna have to help them 
transition in a more moderate way than the one that we've kind of pushed them into so far. So obviously I, I very much believe there's a solution out there around energy um, and we need to focus more pragmatically on how we help countries transition, particularly in the EU. Particularly in the EU, and, and are you seeing the nuclear option as a part of the transition to nuclear going, going nuclear and renewables, sorry, and then leaving the, the carbon side of things? Is that is that part of the transition? I don't know that I understand exactly how that might all stitch together. Well, the EU is, is, is very focused on decarbonization and climate change. And so you don't have to argue whether or not decarbonization is important. You just have to realize that we also need to make sure we have electricity and electricity at a decent price. And this idea of, of being decarbonized but not having electricity, I don't think works for anybody. So the, the European industry around nuclear has, is very mature. Many of the nations of NATO have nuclear power, Many of them want nuclear power. Poland is a, fa is a fabulous example. What a great country, what a great ally to America. They don't have nuclear power. Most of their energy comes from the dirtiest form of coal we have called lignite coal. So here's a country that wants to pursue nuclear power very aggressively and we have to help them do it. And so many of these countries that want to decarbonize have determined that without nuclear power, I can't do it. So whether or not we like nuclear power, these countries are going to pursue it and they're going to pursue it legitimately through all of the treaties that are set into motion, all the protocols, all the safety features. I'm simply saying that I would much rather have America and its allies provide that nuclear power than Russia and China. And to that point, we were the leaders in the U.S., up until about 30 years ago, right? As far as nuclear power is concerned, what created that move away from nuclear power 30 years ago? Why have we not continued to invest in it? And why do we now have to catch up? I think if you look at how we really got into the industry in the early 70s, it was caused by the oil crisis. Everybody remembers or have heard about the long gas lines and all the things that we were watching uh, in the early 70s, that really precipitated the fleet build out of nuclear power in America. And we built over 100 nuclear power plants in a fairly short period of time. So we became 20% of our energy mix in America was nuclear power, which absolutely was 50% of our clean energy. So we were very stable in the industry. We had over 100 plants operating. We, were, we weren't building any new ones, but we didn't need to. And where was that funding coming from, building those plants? Was that privately funded? Was it government funded? It, it started off as government funded to get, to get into the full rate production. But then at that point, it really became what we call B2B, business to state level. So it was a sovereign investment um, with Westinghouse and General Electric and these huge industries that were created. I mean, people don't buy nuclear power like you buy an automobile from General Motors. So there will always be this kind of regulated utility purchased, which you could call government purchased in the regulated or deregulated market. But essentially the utilities were buying nuclear power to power their states. And so I would kind of call that quasi government funded, but some of these utilities are private, you know, they're profit making as well. So it was a somewhat of a privatized model, but the point was we built over a hundred reactors we really stopped building. We didn't need to build anymore. 
Um, and, and so that started the decline of our competencies in America. And unfortunately, industries such as Westinghouse and GE went overseas to find new business. And in the process of doing that, in some cases, sold their companies to other countries. And so when you take a step back and you say, how the heck did we allow Westinghouse to sell its intellectual property to the Chinese in 2010? You kind of go, well, who thought that was a good idea? But in fact, what they were doing was chasing the market. And our government allowed them to do that. So I don't blame the industry for what it did. It went to where the business was. My point is we should have never allowed this incredible technology to fall out of the hands of the United States. And so now here we are in 2023, there's a 300 gigawatt new build capacity out there that's global. And the United States hasn't successfully built a plant in 30 years. So how do we return our primacy as a country that knows how to build nuclear power and should be doing it for the rest of the world when we don't have an industry to speak of? So that's the dilemma that we have. And then I would say the final part of this was there's a fuel cycle that comes with nuclear power that's very important. Who's producing the enriched uranium that goes into all these reactors? And in the mid-70s and 80s, the United States produced 100% of the world's enriched uranium for the global market, which was over 400 reactors. Today, we produce none because, again, we allowed this incredibly important industry to be outsourced, to be sold to other countries. And what Russia and China have figured out is they're going to dominate this industry. And so in many ways, we need to come back to understanding the commercial, the geopolitical, the national security, the industrial base aspects of this industry, which in my opinion is, is much more important than say whether you, bid, you build wind turbines or not. So I look at nuclear power as a special kind of energy industry over others. How then do we achieve that? Because we don't have SMRs right now, right? So, so this is this is the next step, and and we see the benefits. I mean, you've talked about the benefits of these reactors, but at the same time, we don't have those. So there's there's private money. I mean, you guys in your company, there's a lot of military leadership in your country or in your company. And then and then also talking about like the DOD has, the, D the Department of Defense has led on some of this kind of innovation investment in the few, in the past. I mean, certainly with regard to troops and and how can, how does that, how do all those pieces fit together? The private, the DOD, the, the government, the making it happen, especially now that we see that there is a real profound need. So you have this tipping point in America right now. You have over a dozen vendors developing SMRs in America today, but they're doing it as prototypes. They're doing it as a, um, a program that has a one reactor prototyping plan. And so that doesn't achieve the cost curve reduction that you heard us discuss in Colorado with Alan Schwartz. It doesn't create the manufacturing and the factories that are needed. And so what we need to do in America is create the demand signal for new build that allows these SMRs to get into what we call full rate production. Then they can go out and sell their reactor 
to other countries at a price point that's competitive, plus all the benefits of working with the United States and and the benefits to our companies. And those companies right now, or the countries you're talking about, are the developing countries. This Correct. is not this is not going back into China and, and selling the selling the the intellectual property. This is about this is about delivering U.S. technology to our allies, to the emerging markets, and to countries that are pursuing nuclear power legitimately and safely. And one of the things America does more than than any other country, in my opinion, is the safe, secure operations of nuclear power. Even though we haven't built one in 30 years, we're still the country that maintains the highest standard of care in nuclear power. And, And so you mentioned the military. You look at the U.S. Navy. We have quietly built 100 small modular reactors in the last 50 years. They're aboard submarines, they're aboard aircraft carriers. And to think about if I can put one of these safely on a submarine, then it can operate for 60 years. I can surely build one on land. And so creating this commercial structure where the private sector can come in and see the benefits of owning nuclear power plants and then tying it to the off taker, such as an Amazon or a Google that desperately wants this kind of power because they all want to be clean. That's the race. Everybody wants to decarbonize and be clean, but they also need the kind of power that nuclear provides. And and the last thing to demystify it for a second, everybody says, well, how can a country like Zambia operate a nuclear power plant? Don't you need all these PhDs? Don't you need all these physicists? And I say, well, the United States Navy operates a hundred nuclear power plants and over 85% of the people that touch those power plants don't even have a college degree because it's about standardization, it's about safety and security. And so the concept of bringing nuclear power to the emerging market, to me, makes so much sense uh, because what comes with it is new industries, data centers, desalinating water, producing food, agribusiness. Um, I, I do get on my soapbox a bit on this issue because I think much more important than decarbonization is lack of food, lack of water, urbanization around the planet, um, the, the rare earth minerals that are required to scale up in renewable energy that we just simply don't have. And so I think it's important that we focus on what I believe is much more important than decarbonization, which is lack of food, lack of water, which is really all tied to lack of electricity. Electricity is the currency of the 21st century, energy, Um, is the currency. And if we don't provide abundant energy, then you will have the concerns such as mass migration. People don't leave their home because they're not happy with their homeland. They leave it when there's not enough water and food or energy to to maintain their their families. So again, I, I believe that nuclear power gives us the opportunity to bring energy to nations that allow them to grow, industrialize, and be prosperous. Well, and and again, the war in Ukraine might well be a precipitating event as with regard to food too, right? That we might see the, we will see the repercussions of that in a lot of places and a lot of these developing countries are going to feel it as much or much more profoundly than the rest of us. What's the, what's the next step? I mean, how does this how, how does this all happen? Is, is it, you know, you've got the lobby part, you've got the, 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 the construction part, you've got the, 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 the intellectual property part, you've got, I mean, there's so many different parts of this. 
what gets to be the next step, the critical step is funding the next step. I think that we're at, we're at such a good point right now and, it, and it's taken a long time. Um, from the Paris Climate Accord to COP26 in Glasgow to COP27 in Egypt last year, nuclear power has been accepted into the Clean Energy Club, let's say, which is a big deal. I mean, it's always been big clean step. energy. It's a big, big step. So, so here we are now with a legitimate conversation of energy mix around renewable, nuclear, hydro, and a legitimate way to get out of fossil fuels without damaging a country's energy sovereignty. So I think that's a huge step in the right direction. Now it's important to drive down the cost curve, make it competitive with other forms of energy, and make it incentivized so that countries will pursue it over coal, natural gas, and oil, which means it has to be just as cost competitive as these traditional fossil fuel industries. So in comes the private sector, because what we have done is we've incentivized investments in clean. And now they look at nuclear power and go, oh, this is a clean investment. And we want people that make money in this conversation. Because when you try to do this as a sovereign to sovereign or an NGO type of government led effort, you frankly never get there. You don't get the rigor, the discipline. But when you invite in free market capitalism in a good way to be the leaders of nuclear power development, and when they get involved, you're going to ensure that you have the rigor, the discipline, and the returns are going to be there. And once we make profitability a driver around innovation and privatization of nuclear power, I think you're going to see, in a good way, the proliferation of nuclear power. And so uh, those are the next steps. And I believe the conditions have been set for that to happen. Um, you heard a lot of it firsthand, Chris, from Guggenheim. Uh, Guggenheim has organized itself as a securities company and investment bank around this industry um, better than anybody. And you're seeing the JP Morgans and the Goldman Sachs and the others turning their attention to nuclear power. So I, I believe we are at a tipping point in such a favorable way. And like I said earlier, whether we're involved or not, there's going to be 300 gigawatts of new capacity built because countries want it. So it's really in our best interest to be the country of choice and have our companies be the industries of choice for these emerging market countries. How did you get involved on the nuclear side? Because you were you, you were a pilot, right? Son of, son of a pilot, pilot. And then, right. I mean, obviously rose to the, to the rank of, of rear admiral. But at the same time, how do you go from that to one, what do you do coming out of the Navy. Is, is there a logical step of this is this is what I do afterwards? How, how did that all work for you? So, so my journey to this point really was started in my time in the Navy, even though I wasn't involved with nuclear power. Um, I got heavily involved, ironically, in counterproliferation work. The concerns about nuclear power, the concerns about weapons of mass destruction, the concerns about rogue nations that had um, nefarious designs on using nuclear power or fissile material. And that was very much a mission area that I was involved in. And it was very frightening to me. So when I got out and I formed this company, I wanted to get very senior people involved to first kind of validate that this was something that was important, but B, help me get there. And, and along the way, I went from 
understanding that I was concerned about nuclear power and I wanted to ensure that it was designed safely to one of understanding that nuclear power can become the stabilizing industry for the planet. And, and what I learned along my journey from 2016 to today is that stability comes in many forms. And many people think about climate change as temperature rise or seawater rise, and that's a legitimate concern. But more importantly is lack of food, lack of water, and the things that underpin instability. And so it, to me, my journey in, into this industry was one that started off as a concern that then I became aware that it could be the most important industry to save the planet. And so my focus and my company's focus for the last four or five years has been on helping countries achieve the energy mix that works for them, but doing it in a way that achieves the goals that America sets out for itself, which is being the country that wants to be the provider of stability around the world. We're the greatest country on this planet, and this is such an important industry. So really my focus and my journey has taken me to this point um, and I'm extremely excited about how many of the industries have rallied now around the same conversation. And if you go back to Eisenhower, he had it right. Atoms for peace will electrify the planet. So we just need to do it safely and securely and economically. Um, but I'm extremely excited about where we're moving in terms of what I call abundant baseload and clean energy. How does that work as well? Because I mean, obviously, as being in the military, you saw, you know, the counter proliferation, this kind of thing. Were you involved on the science side? I mean, is nuclear one of those things that you look at and go, okay, I understand and I see the benefits. I see how the economic base can be built and security can be built when people have power, when they have energy, when they have food, when they have water, when they have that kind of stability. But is there a need for you to go into the science part. And obviously you have an understanding of the science part, but then I would imagine that a lot of the, the new, this is one of the, one of the scary parts, I think for a lot of people is that we think, well, this is nuclear and you're talking about, you're talking about fission. And then, then now you're talking about fusion too. You're yeah. bringing, that's the next step. And it's like, okay, I think I just understood fission and then now fusion. Okay. How, it, how, how are all these little, tiny little atoms coming together to create this power and how do I understand it on a personal level or how did how did you understand it on a personal level well I think one of the things and I, and I did get involved in the science of it but it was always understanding the risk of the industry in the hands of rogue nations or in the hands of terrorists and so I understood the science first from that perspective and then I realized the science is not that scientific. It's actually very much industrialized and manufactured and we understand it quite well. The reactors that are running today are the ones that were designed in the 1950s. So recognizing that the science is not that difficult and under the non-proliferation treaty, global treaty, every country has the right to nuclear power. And I think that's extremely important. So you've got the policy in place, You've got the science that's there. Now we're going to create the capital markets that work for that. And so I think a lot of it is just demystifying. But, but you're exactly right. Countries that pursue nuclear power ultimately get to the decision point based on things that are out of their control. How do I secure this? 
how do I ensure that I have the right people that can operate these? Um, am I setting myself up for a catastrophe in my own country? These are legitimate questions by governments. And so what we do in our companies, we help demystify it and we help countries work through the process of deciding whether or not nuclear power makes sense to them. But if it does make sense, what we really emphasize is the human capital development, the science, the industries that will come to your country because of it, which then creates other innovative ideas. Um, UAE, uh, the, the Emirates uh, is a great example. They went from no nuclear power 15 years ago, desert, to four gigawatts of nuclear power they're operating successfully today. And you have to ask yourself, well, what were the benefits of that in this oil-rich nation? Right. That had so much oil, why would they need nuclear power? And they saw the opportunity to, to bring in nuclear power because they wanted to offload their oil into the international market and not consume it for electricity. But if you talk to the Emiratis today about their nuclear power program, they don't talk about that. They don't talk about the four gigawatts of nuclear power. They talk about the 13,000 companies that were created. They talk about the thousands of women that are now in science and math and research. So the second and third order effects of nuclear power are what countries ultimately determine why they need it. And it's less about the electricity and much more about being a country that has it. Because with nuclear power comes so much science and research and groundbreaking technologies that are developed in isotopes and in medicine. And again, if you go back to the, to the core of nuclear power, look at all of the medical technologies that have been created from splitting the atom to things that we use every day in hospitals. And what kind of things are, are we using? What kind of things have come out of that? This well, just think about all the isotope research and CT scans and um, cancer research and things that started off in science around um, uranium and around nuclear power that were commercialized into uses in medicine. And, and then, of course, just creating the ecosystem of people that understand the science of it. And so I, I think about nuclear power as advancing a country from a certain point to a different point. And all the benefits, the side benefits that come from, from nuclear power. And, and many countries, most people don't know this, we have hundreds of countries that have research reactors today. That, and they've had them for decades in their labs and in their universities. They just don't have commercial nuclear power. So if we can help a country get a research reactor, we can sure as heck help them have a commercial nuclear power program as well. Do you guys, with your your leadership with, with such a military background, do you have a different perspective on the geopolitical world than a lot of other people by, by virtue of what you did professionally before you moved into this company? I think there's a certain part of that that was part of creating our company. And what we believe, and I think has borne out in many ways, is that military leaders understand other military leaders from other countries quite well. And unlike what, what you may believe, we're the last ones that want to have conflict. And we're the first ones that want to find ways not to have conflict. And many of the military leaders in the countries that we're talking about in the Middle East and Africa came to the United States and trained alongside us when we were all in uniform together. So there's this kind of bond between military leaders that understand the importance of stability. 
Um, and I think in a way that, that many others don't. And there's also a trustworthiness there with, between military leaders. And I would extend that to China and Russia as well. I mean, we have great exercises that we do as countries with each other because we understand the law of the sea. We understand the rules of the road. We understand the importance of having militaries that respect each other and respect the people and the hierarchy and things of that nature and integrity. So I am very much in favor of the kind of trustworthiness and leadership that comes from countries that understand what I call the military to military relationship. And I think a lot of that transcends into the economics as well. Um, and so, yes, we believe that having diplomatic leaders and national security leaders alongside those that understand the commercial side and understand the business side. And we've got great countries and uh, companies in this country like Caterpillar and John Deere and General Motors that in many ways become um, an extension of our foreign policy. And when you talk about a, a General Motors factory that created 100,000 jobs in another country, to me, that is one of the most stabilizing things we can create. Countries that, that work economically together tend to not go into conflict with each other. So I'm very much a part of stitching together what I call economic entanglement. And the more we are entangled with each other economically, academically, research-wise, the less apt we're going to find ourselves in some kind of conflict down the road. The less apt you are, but it sounds like there is that potential conflict. I mean, you're you're citing uh, the war of art in some ways and talking about Xi, right? That the that the stated goal with energy as the as the big part, big component of foreign policy, the stated goal is to win the war without firing a shot. And this is this is to take all that energy and have that power as a result of the energy, I assume, right? Very much so. And, and I think recognizing that um, what President Xi is doing and what China has been doing for quite a while is developing what they call unrestricted warfare, warfare by another means, warfare that's not tied to bombs and tanks, but it's more about winning economically, winning commercially. Um, the difference is the goals of America are just different from the goals of China and the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese people are fabulous. It's the Chinese Communist Party that sometimes creates the problem. And, and so how do we reconcile their strategy versus our strategy, which tends to be tied into the 20th century? around borders and weapons. And so what I would like to see us do is not think so much about tanks and weapons, but think more about how do we stabilize a country so that they're less apt to have a conflict. And, and so, yes, it's just fundamentally understanding that Russia and China in many ways are offering the world something they really want, while we may be offering the world something they don't need, which is decarbonization. So it's, it is, it is right there in front of us in terms of authoritarian governments versus democracies that operate by the rule of law. Right. And it's and it's giving them what they want, which is which is the ability to live in a lot of ways and be productive within their lives. And that gets to be personal. Right. I want to be able to go where I need to go and go to my job and feed my family and those kinds of things. That's what you're talking about, as opposed to the decarbonization, which in a lot of ways is 
is is I mean, I don't want to call it an intellectual exercise, but it but it, in some ways it is kind of that idea. It's not as it's not as practical, not looking at the at the individuals. And so. So, so for you, the the idea, the step is that you're going that nuclear is is a great answer to the decarbonization and and also providing this ability to live for people. That, that's really it. And, and recognizing that that countries want to be part of the decarbonization solution, but until they can industrialize and until they can have um, infrastructure, I mean, many of these African countries don't have, as I said, a billion people with no electricity. Some countries have plenty of electricity. They can't distribute it. Angola is a great example. Angola has three and a half gigawatts of hydropower, very stable, clean energy produced by water. Yet half their country has no electricity. And they're only using about 25% of this hydropower capacity. So literally three quarters of their energy is going over the falls, as we would say. And so how do we capture that and help countries distribute that power to the benefit of all, not to the benefit of just a few? And, and again, we have to take this on and recognize that countries want stable energy. And, and I think that we've kind of gotten lost in the notion of austerity. In other words, um, if you use too much electricity, you're not responsible to the environment, which is simply not the case. A prosperous nation uses a lot of power, which makes it a prosperous nation. Right. So let's come up with a way to balance the idea of being energy um, consumers, which the consumer himself should never be the one that's given the burden of decarbonization. It's our challenge to decarbonize. It's the consumer's desire to have stable power that's abundant. And so I believe we are staring down exactly what we need to be doing in diverse energy mixes, which is ensuring that countries have abundant power first, baseload power second. And if we can make it clean at the same time, well, now that's the trifecta. And it's absolutely in front of us in terms of technology. And when you open the aperture to the new technologies that are out there and carbon capture and carbon sequestration and scrubbing the atmosphere of carbon, there are unbelievable industries out there that are going to be able to do that, but they were pushed to the sideline because we said, nope, we're just gonna shut down fossil fuel and do wind and solar. So what I'm excited about is as we take a step back and we look at the innovation of our own country alone, I believe we're gonna be able to decarbonize not at the expense of energy security. We're gonna be able to decarbonize and have energy security. And that's what I'm extremely excited about. And what kind of a time frame are we looking at? Well, I will tell you, I think in many ways, we can be uh, have robust carbon capture programs and robust clean energy solutions in the next one to two years, because many of these technologies are sitting out there. I mean, Bill Gates has developed multiple technologies around carbon capture, but there was no industry for it because we basically said, we're just gonna get out of fossil fuel. So there's no need to capture the carbon. Well, in fact, we're not going to be out of fossil fuel anytime soon. And so we need to develop these technologies. And every 10 days, China builds a new coal fire plant. So even with $370 billion being spent in the Inflation Reduction Act, and let's assume that it's successful, 
We're going to move the U.S. carbon footprint back about 15 years. It doesn't do anything for the planet. So we have to take a global view of decarbonization, not one that's domestically focused. So if we can decarbonize in our planet, that's great. I mean, in our country. But if we can't help other countries decarbonize legitimately, then it's really just a waste of time. And so we have to focus on incentivizing India and China that have growing populations and massive needs for energy. How do you incentivize them to decarbonize? And that's really where I think innovation is going to come in because they're not going to stop producing electricity with coal. They're going to continue to do that. But how do we help it become cleaner coal? How do we help it become a carbon scrubbing system by which the smoke that leaves the coal fire plant is completely decarbonized before it leaves the smokestack? And it's turned into steam. So I am extremely excited about where these innovative technologies are. But we have to recognize that fossil fuel is going to be around for a long time. And there's there's such a profound need on so many levels, right? I mean, the, the, the levels of needing the energy, of the food, of the water, of the, of the people in general. And to me, I'm excited about it. it. It makes it exciting for me and especially looking at the climate as well, right? I mean, trying, trying to stabilize the the climate uh, the the yeah the climate control here I mean really is what we're looking at so absolutely and I think that we can achieve the goals of Paris but we have to recognize it's not being done the way we're currently trying to do it this this is this is great I'm I'm glad that the that that conversation is continuing to happen because I think we want the same objectives you know and, and what's interesting we tend to look at China and Russia as rivals and adversaries, but in many ways, we have the same goals. They don't want to build unsafe nuclear power. They would rather see a climate that has less pollution. China in particular, some 25% of their people die from emphysema and lung disease and other things that, that are attributes of their own energy industry. They aren't ignoring that problem. But they also recognize, as President Xi has said, I can't get out of the old until I have a legitimate replacement with new. And so he's going to continue to overweigh the need for electricity and growth in his country over decarbonization. So we just simply need to incentivize legitimately countries such as China and India to be part of the decarbonization plan. But they're not going to do it at the expense of their people. And I think we just have to realize that. That that is a part of this the next step that we're going to have to take is, you know, obviously it seems like you should consider the people. I mean, it seems like that should be an assumption, right? That you consider the people, but consider the people, consider their lives and consider the next steps incorporating how people are going to react. And and we know we know how we how we're going to react as people. So Mike, thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for Thank you for educating me coming from my, my 80s background of, of nuclear understanding. So I really appreciate it. Well, Chris, I, I want to thank you for having me on your show. You're such a great influencer. You're a great voice to such a large part of our population and the work you do. I'm so proud of, of being associated with you and getting to know you. And, and I can't thank you enough for inviting me on your show because with voices like yours, understanding this issue better, then many of the people that we need to come on board will understand it better as well.
Well, thank you. Well, we're all trying to trying to do our part, right? To yeah. to to be to be good citizens of the world. So I appreciate what you're doing and happy, happy to be playing my part as well. So thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've had a great time. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in, like us, follow us, subscribe, and we will continue to bring you great content. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.